Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Welcome to Book Club. Today on the show, we have Bob Berg. How's it going, Bob? Good. I like those two rules. Much better rules than the uh, one from the original movie. <laughs> yes, you can tell we're David Fincher fans. <laughs> Absolutely. So how have I you like been? It. Been great. Thank you. It's so great to speak with you guys. I'm excited about it. Good. We're excited about having you on the show. So we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, Go Give Us Selmo, which you. has been a very interesting read for us. It's been oh, very different, Bob. Really it's different. Very, very. You know, I've read a lot of sales books. This has been a very different to anything else I've read before. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I, I'd say thank you, but I'm not sure that's a compliment. Actually, okay. Uh, it, it, well, didn't say you know. Okay, so didn't say good. Just said different. <laughs> well, I've, I've got a few questions, right? So, because yeah. what we type, find, I don't know if you've watched the show or listened to the shows, we go through it sometimes. One of the things we found as we started doing book club as a show is that talking to the author always creates a completely different context conversationally uh, in as much as, for example, we had James Muir on the show last month. That, that was a real changer for me. I read James Muir's book and I didn't like it. The but, minute I spoke to James Muir and he told me who the book was designed for, it made immediate sense to me. And I wish we'd had the conversation. Yeah, I almost wish. We'd, and so what we've discovered is the authors provide a context that sometimes isn't always in the book when we have them on the show. So I think probably the first question to ask you today, Bob, is who's Go Give Us Sell More for, for you? Yeah. By the way, I, I love James Muir. Great guy. I, I have the book, have not read it yet. It's on my short stack to read. Right. And I've heard fantastic things about it. So looking forward to that. Uh, well, the go-giver uh, or go-givers sell more is really for the entrepreneur and salesperson. And if okay. you're an entrepreneur, you are a salesperson. And if Hopefully. you're a salesperson, you're a salesperson. So that's really who it's written for. It's it's pretty much right in the title. And um, and and that is who it's it's written for. And, and is it written for, you know, someone like me, a 41-year-old salesman that's been selling for 20 years, or is it written for a 22-year-old salesperson that's been selling for a year? We, From the feedback we've received, it's really for both because there are things people, uh, you know, someone who's who's younger, who's just starting out in sales, it, it's good for them to see what sales really is and what it isn't because we talk about, say, you know, we talk about that right from the beginning. And that uh, so pe many people have a misperception about selling. Uh, they think it's it's uh, trying to convince someone to buy something they don't want or need. And of course, that's not selling. Uh, that's being a con artist. Uh, <laughs> selling by its very nature, by definition, it's simply discovering what the other person wants, needs, or desires and helping them to get it. Uh, we cite the old English root of the word sell, which was salad, which meant to give. Right. So when you're selling, you're literally giving. Now, someone would say, well, isn't that a, um, you know, just a, a, a play on words? Or I don't think so, because when you think about it, you, let's say you're in front of a prospective customer or client, okay, and you're in mm. the selling situation. Well, what exactly are you giving them? You're giving them time, yep. attention, counsel, education, empathy 
And most of all, you're giving them value. This is what selling is. And I think sometimes it's easy for someone to, or not say easy, but let's just say natural for someone to say, oh, well, this is like a goody two shoes type of thing. No, this is real world stuff because you think about it. Nobody is going to buy from you because you have a quota to meet. Okay. They're not going to buy from you because you need the money. And they're not even going to buy from you because you're a really nice person. Yeah. They're going to buy from you only because they believe they will be better off by doing so than by not doing so. And that's the only reason they should buy from you or from me or for, from anybody. Yeah. So it's, it's up to the salesperson. And this is what we want young salespeople to learn. And sometimes older salespeople to relearn that it's only through placing your focus on them, on bringing an immense customer experience and immense value to them that the sale is going to take place. This is why we say that money is an echo of value. Yeah. Because the focus must be on that person. This is real world. This isn't goody two shoes, you know, kind of stuff. Okay. Because you must meet quite, because I mean, I've got to say, I, I, I'm hard work to convince to do anything differently. They actually call, <laughs> they actually call me the price of Tron 3000 at work because I'm like a robot. So therefore to read something that challenged, you know, most salespeople's paradigm and then for that person to take it in is difficult. So you must meet a lot of resistance when you're talking to prospects and people about this book. I would or thought. when you're coaching people. So, and I agree with Mike, I, I found it difficult because it's such a different paradigm to the one I was trained in, Bob. Um, and actually it's been a great read for me. It, as difficult as it's been because it's so different to my paradigm, it has made me think particularly around value. It's made me really think, well, what, am I doing? what value am I bringing to my conversation, to my call, to my client right now? Um, but my question I think both of us really wanted to ask you was, how do you take somebody from, for example, Michael and I were coached in a sort of very late 80s, early 90s recruitment paradigm, which was very combative uh, at times. How do you take somebody from that paradigm to, in reality, go-giving as a, as a thought process? Yeah. You know, I want to answer a question you asked a, a couple of minutes ago, too, because it was a great question. And that is, don't I face a lot of resistance to this? And I thought I was going to, but mm. no, it's really more relief. Is it? Because I think people want to, you know, most people in sales, they believe in what they do. Yes. They understand that they're bringing immense value. They believe in their product or service. Yeah. And it's like a relief to them that it, that it's, not only should it not be them against the prospective customer, but that they're both on the same side and should be. Yeah. And they like that because it's, it's like a relief to them. Oh yeah. Okay. I, so I can do this. It's much more alignment. It's much more congruent with who they are and who they, they want to be. So then the question comes, and this is what you just asked. Well, how do you, you know, how do you really communicate that with someone in a way that they buy into that, especially if either they're from the kind of old school, you know, uh, combato type of, you know, selling or that's mm. what they're being taught or whatever. Well, first, for anyone to make a change, they've got to understand first that there's a problem with what they're doing. Otherwise, why would they? You know, so if if you were to say to someone, how is what you're doing right now working for you? And they said, fantastic. I mean, I'm closing every sale and this is amazing. And I, you know, well, they're not going to change when, you know, why, why would they? 
But most people, I think, see that even if they're doing well right now, that there are, and typically it's the people who are doing well who are always looking for the edge anyway, right? Who are looking to, and so then it's a matter of, you know, yeah, it could be better. How? And so if they said, okay, Bob, but here's the thing. You know, I I get this go-giver, focus on the customer, it's all about them. Once you don't need the money, but you know, right now (laughs) I've got to be making money, so I've got to be getting... So then what I would do uh, is let's take them through a couple of different uh, scenarios, okay? So let's say you sell a product or a service and you have a prospect in front of you, okay? And that if all goes well, they should purchase from you. There's no reason why not. So you really need the money and you're focused on yourself and you're... Pro- now, you're going to go into this presentation and... That's how you're going to come across. Now, maybe not consciously to that other person, but if if your goal is to transfer their money from them to you, that's how it's going to come across. And so, yeah, you'll ask questions, but there'll be questions meant more to sharp angle the person as opposed to really explore what they need, want, and desire. Uh, when they have a, a an objection or a question, you might be a little defensive because, hey, this objection standing in the way of your money, right? And you'll be closing and there'll be that sort of not desperation as much as, you know, and that person will sense it. And, and I would say to this person in front of me, this salesperson, I'd say, is this person more likely or less likely to buy from you right now? And they will probably say less likely. Now, let's say you're this same person. Okay. You still need the money. Yeah. But now what you're going to do is, is you're not going to deny your self-interest because we're human beings. We are self-interested creatures. We're not going to deny. You're not going to deny that you need the money. But you're going to set aside. You're going to temporarily suspend or set aside this self-interest because you realize just, just again, on a self-interested level, it's not going to serve you, never, never mind serving the customer, okay? You're going to put it aside, and you're going to go in there totally focused on this other human being and their needs. So you go in there, and you ask the right discovery questions, and you discover exactly what they need, what they want, what they desire, how your product or service can help them solve a problem, how it can make their life better, easier, more fulfilling, whatever it is your product does. You're going to listen, and you're going to listen to understand. And when they have a question or even an objection, you're not going to be defensive, but you're going to welcome it, and you're going to explore the root cause of the objection with this person to find out why it manifested as it, as it did. And the level of no like and trust is going to just just go sky high. And only after you've really discovered and you understand their needs, wants, and desires are you going to now match the benefits of your product or service with that person's needs, wants, and desires. Now, is this person more likely or less likely to buy from you right now? And most people will answer, well, more likely. Probably. So this is how we go about selling a person on the idea <laughs> of why, you know, we do it the same way. We ask questions, we find out their needs. Okay. And uh, So something and- I like to do, Bobby, sometimes on the subject of the, the, this concept of um, suspension of self-interest, mm-hmm. sometimes I actually like to be very honest about my self-interest with a client and almost... For me, I'd find it. I find the concept 
of suspending my self-interest difficult because I'd feel like I was almost lying to the client. Whereas sometimes I'm more comfortable saying to the client, do you know, I really do want to succeed and I really am in this to make money, but I'm not going to do that if I haven't listened and I'm not going to do that if I don't understand you. And what I'd really like to do is do that today. And so I think what I've got from the book is a lot of this is about that, you know, I, I watch rugby over here. That's my sport. And I think sometimes teams play the game with a certain spirit. And one team can be a very cynical team, but they can be successful for so long. And another team can play the game with a smile on their face and a spirit and a warmth. And you can sense it in them. And I think for me, a lot of this is about playing the game of being a salesperson, living the career of being a salesperson with the right spirit and the right humanity with the way you do your work. But I would, I know I would find that a little bit difficult about suspending my own self-interest because I am self-interested. Uh, we all are. A personal, I, and you know, I mean, when you say you'd go in there and you'd say to this person, I want to be successful, uh, you know, if that's what you do that works for you, fine. My, my suggestion is, first of all, they already know that you're, yeah, they that, that's what, what you do. I don't see it being false or inauthentic in any way to willingly suspend your self-interest because your job when you're there is to serve that other person. Yeah. Uh, again, the, the money is the echo of value. All this means is that the focus is on that other person. The focus right. is on serving that other person. The focus is on providing immense value to them. The money you receive is a very natural result. It's the byproduct. Of the value you provide. So, you know, personally, I don't think that person cares that you want to be successful. They care that you're able to bring them what you need to uh, bring them. You could put it this way. It's in your own best self-interest to suspend your self-interest. <laughs> okay. What about technique, Bob? So you talked a lot in the book about technique um, and how it can sound rote. So here's... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I thought you would yeah, finish the question. Sorry. Uh, I, and, and so, and I'm wondering, sometimes I've seen technique used in a way where people have had so much desire. So you use feel, felt, found, which I am a massive fan of, by the way. Um, but I, I, my experience has often been, if you'd know it well enough, I, I, I think sometimes salespeople don't know their technique well enough. So their mind is focusing on technique and not the customer. Whereas there's almost a tipping point with technique where if your technique is that good that it's a subconscious reaction, then you can actually focus on listening. And I was always taught that technique is there so that you can be present and you can actually listen more. And that the skill element of being a sales professional is actually to be completely instinctive with your skill so that actually you can hear what's going on in the meeting and listen to the customer. So do, do you agree that there might be almost a tipping point with technique and, and that maybe technique is something that most people dabble with but don't quite go to the nth degree with? Well, let me clarify something because we've had Please. people who have said, oh, Berg and Mann are downplaying the importance of selling technique or selling skills. Nowhere do we do that. Are you not? Nowhere. No. Okay. What we say is it's only when it's about 
the technique. All right. And not about the other person. Okay. Okay. That we know we believe in, you know, I've been teaching sales for how many years, you know, and I got, I started my career learning everything I could know that how to is part of the system, selling systems and techniques, vitally important. Great. But they can't be, they can't be the end all be all. They're the means to an end, which is serving your customer. And yeah. what we said is that when the technique, when it's about the technique, that's when it's, and that's when it sounds technique-y. Yes. What we said about the feel, felt, and found is that that can sound technique If you say to somebody, oh, I understand how you feel. Many people have felt <laughs> the same way. What they found was, you know, I mean, that's so, uh, so known today that you might get someone saying, oh, no, they're not doing the old feel, felt, and found. And what we also say in the book there is you may not understand how they feel. Yeah. You know, one of the things we talk about in terms of empathy is empathy, while it's it's defined as the identification with or vicarious experiencing of another person's feelings, communicating empathy isn't necessarily about understanding how they feel, because you may not have any idea how they no. feel. No, what communicating not. empathy is about is communicating you understand they're feeling something. Yeah. And that this something is distressful to them and that you're there to help them work through it. Correct. Well, I, so that's what we said, yeah. I was always taught that with empathy, sometimes the best thing to say is, listen, I don't quite know what you're feeling like right now, but I would love to understand. And that's more, uh, that, yeah. that's, that's, that's much more empathic than I know how you feel, which is, incre- exactly. which is incredibly right. frustrating for me. And the, that's the difference between relying on a technique like feel, felt, and found, and again, knowing it so well in anything you do, of course, we should always know. Uh, we talk about scripts in there and that people say, well, aren't scripts using a script inauthentic? Absolutely not. Because it's, it's sort of like if you ever go to a play, you know, ever go to the show and yeah. you see these marvelous actors on stage. Do you think they're winging it up there? <laughs> of course not. No. They've learned these lines so well that, as you said, it's part of them. Yeah. Right. And when it is now you can put your focus on that other person. We talk about what I call feel good questions. Okay. John and I talk about feel good questions in the book. And I, we say, of course, memorize them, know them. Absolutely. Because if you don't, then what you're going to do is when you ask the question, you're going to be so busy thinking about the next question that you're supposed to ask. You won't be focusing on them. Absolutely. But when you know these and they're part of you, then you can put your absolute 100% focus on that other person. So, so sure. Why do you think there's so much, you know, Michael and I have recruited people over the years, haven't we, where we've said to them, if you know, and we, for that exact reason, we've said, if you know your stuff well enough, if you know your scripts well enough, then you will be able to listen and understand what's going do, on do, in the do conversation. Do you know what that is, though? That's, that's just because people are lazy. Do you think? People are lazy inherently, aren't they? Anyway, what I was going to talk to you about, actually, Bob, because I've been monopolizing the conversation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Is that this, that, that quite often when I read a sales book, it strikes me that I can just dip in and dip out and take one or two things from a hundred things. This feels like something, this book, and it, I tell you what it feels like, actually, this book. It feels like a philosophy around sales. A movement. It feels like a philosophy. Thank and you. it feels to me like you can't half dip into a philosophy. You're either all in or you're all out. I mean, you're nodding. So, for those of us who, for those viewers that are, that those listeners that are listening, sorry, is that what you, do? You think that's the case? That this is a book that you have to 
and should do every single part of it rather than just take the bits that might get you some business? Well, there are five laws, right? The laws of value, compensation, influence, authenticity, and receptivity. Uh, if you leave any of them out, you can't be anywhere near as successful as you potentially could be. So yeah, we, we'd say this is a, a philosophy that, uh, and we would also say that since time immemorial, for as long as there have been any kind of market-based economies, successful salespeople and entrepreneurs have used these five laws. There's nothing new about them. Uh, now, they didn't always, uh, that they often used them intuitively, right? <laughs> they didn't always know that's what they were doing, mm. but they always had to do it. And so, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's really, it's a, a it, it's a, an all encompassing philosophy uh, that, that it would, it would be difficult to leave out one or two of the laws and still be successful. I, I really liked your fourth law, actually, the law of authenticity. That's yeah. something that's very, very, very close to my heart. And actually, Previous question was a prelude to this one, really, because I suspect that if you were to do one or a few of the laws, you are then being inauthentic, which actually undermines that the, all the other laws put together, doesn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I think it's uh, and in the original um, book in the series, the parable, the Go Giver, um, when we the example that we used uh, for this was Deborah Davenport, who had shared that what she learned was all the skills. Uh, you know, sales skills, like we were talking about earlier, uh, technical skills, people skills, as important as they all are. And again, they are all very, very important. And they're all for naught if you don't come at it from your true authentic core. And that's yeah. the thing. Mm. So, you know, you can really mess everything up by by trying to be someone you're not. Well, we see, you know, Bob, we in our business, we have a bird's eye view in many respects of the sales industry. And we meet a lot of people either who are at the very peak of where, where they could be in their careers. And sometimes we meet people in the very trough, don't we, Mike? Oh, 100%. And, yeah. and often when you meet the people that are having a tough time, you sense an, inau an inauthenticity about them uh, where you think this guy's just trying to be somebody he's not. And that might be that he's not congruent with that. There's an almost people develop these salesy affectations where they're trying so hard to be a salesman and trying so hard to sound like a salesperson, but actually they're not. Yeah, and, and it, you know, I think there's a couple reasons for it too. One is, you know, by and large, when someone does not show up authentically, but they they tend to to be come across as more of a, uh, I think the correct Latin term is phonus balonus. <laughs> uh, a lot of times, it's that they just don't have the self confidence to yeah. show up. Authentically. They don't recognize the true value that they bring to the table, uh, both in terms of their intrinsic value, but also just, you know, their market value. I define market value as that combination of strengths, traits, talents, and characteristics that allow you to bring value to the marketplace in such a way that you'll be financially rewarded for it. And we all have these, uh, Mike Lippman used to call them assets of value, okay, those strengths that we have. So that's why it's also important for people to get with someone to help them recognize their own strengths and greatness, if you will, because as human beings, we tend to be so emotionally close to ourselves that it's difficult for us to recognize some of those things that really do separate and distinguish us in a positive way from, from others. But, but I also think that uh, another issue is that, you know, we always say learn from everyone, but we say adapt their wisdom don't adopt their personality. 
And in today's day of I the- I like that, actually. Oh, thank you. Well, because in today's day of the guru, right, who kind of comes across as though they have everything together, which mm. they don't, uh, because nobody does, <laughs> right? And, and But they come across that way yep. and they this or they did that. So people think, oh, if I, if I can only be exactly like them, uh, <laughs> then I'm going to, right? But we can't because we're not them. We can learn from them. Absolutely. You know, who is wise? That person who learns from all others. We can learn from everyone, but adapt. Don't adopt. Stay congruent with your true authentic you take a little piece off each person, don't so, you? So in terms of this book then, when I've been on your website, Bob, I noticed that you've got a few different books out. Is this part of a system of books or are they all independent pieces of work? Well, it's funny. Four of the, the There's four books in the series. Three of them are parables. This yeah, okay. is the only one that's not a parable. This is more of a, um, I guess, an action guide, if you will, because it kind of takes the principles from the original book and explains how to apply them and also um, examples of people who, who have, whether whether they applied them from the book or were you utilizing them long before the book, you know, was written. So this is it. But the other ones are all parables. So the go-giver, right. then the go-giver leader, and then the last one, the go-giver influencer. Those are all parables they stand alone okay anyone could read them in any order but they do build upon the same in the same fictional town with some of the characters making uh cameo appearances and so forth so it's <laughs> okay. kind of that fun sounds cool for the people who read them in order right and what are you reading right now oh goodness what am i not reading right now uh i have so many books going at the same time let's see i got jeffrey gittimer's sales manifesto going right here right uh, let's see, where's my, I just got through with, uh, Mark Schaefer's, um, uh, oh, goodness gracious. I can't remember the name That's of it right now. Uh, and let's see, there's a new book coming out, uh, called, uh, Frictionless yeah. by, um, uh, oh goodness. I'm so mad at myself right now. That's I'm, all right, Bob. I'm, not remembering the name and i should because i know these people really well <laughs> <laughs> okay so what's your i usually have th three or four books going at the same time okay so tell me how did you come up with it Wh where did it come from uh as far as the go-giver yeah what, what i'd love to know more about the background story behind it and how you got it, it feels like there once might have been a mean salesperson who saw the <sighs> error of his ways and this was his uh, an epiphany in text format. Uh, well, so that's a, a very valid point. I wouldn't say a mean salesperson, but I'd say one who, once he began to learn the sales skills, mm. became so enamored with the sales skills that that became the focus, right. <laughs> like we were talking about earlier, right? And then, but so here's where the epiphany came because I'd been in sales a couple of years. I'd started in broadcasting. I was on radio, then TV. I, I was okay at it, but not, not very good. So I graduated into sales, knew nothing about sales. So I floundered a while. Then I started seeing, this is you know almost 40 years ago now. Wow. And I got some a couple of sales books and began to apply the information and immediately my sales just changed. It was night and day. I now had a system, right? What is a system? Yeah. I define a system as the process of predictably achieving a goal based on a logical and specific set of how-to principles, 
right? The key is predictability. If by doing A, you'll get the desired yeah. result of B, you know all you need to do is A. And that's what I was doing. And I was and I was doing well. Right. And I was now into it for a couple of years, doing well, but not as well as I could have been. I was sort of like Joe in the original story, right? There was a lot of untapped potential there, and it really had to do with with my focus. What well, you're going to tell me, you were focusing just on the money, aren't you? Um, I wouldn't say just on the money. I still believed very much in the product and knew it was helping people. I'd say my focus, though, was on the technique, right. was on the sales part. The, I was so enamored with the science of selling, if you will. Yeah. Okay. The craft. Um, so, yeah. And so the craft, exactly. But here's what happened. I remember coming back from an appointment for a company I was selling for. It was a high ticket item. And I remember coming back sort of disgusted with myself. Uh, and and I was I was sitting there on a, on a couch or something. And, the, and there was a guy, an older guy with the company. I didn't know him very well. And when I say older, right, I mean like my age now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> an old guy. Not, yeah. that, old, not that old, Bob. And, and so, um, he, and he said to me, and I think he always, and he wasn't in the sales department, but I, I think he always kind of saw me as a, a guy with potential who kind of was in the wrong, heading in the wrong direction. And he said to me, Berg, can I give you some advice? And I said, yeah, you know, please. And he said, if you want to make a lot of money in sales, he said, don't have making money, or you could say making the sale as the target. He said, your target is serving others. When you hit the target, he said, you'll get a reward. And that reward will come in the form of money. And you can do with that money whatever you choose. But never forget, he said, the money is simply the reward for hitting the target. It ain't the target itself. Your target is serving others. And that changed things. That changed things. And he was the catalyst. I now for you understood. Hmm? He was your catalyst for then for this. He sure was. He sure was. And uh, my great friend Dandi Skumachi, great author and, and uh, leadership teacher, she and I uh, were talking about this and we, we coined the term, I think we coined the term, drive by mentor. And right. this is someone who you, you, know, you don't know very well, you don't really have a relationship with, yeah. but they drive by and hit you with some advice that you happen to really need and be ready for at the time. And it made a significant difference right. in your life. There you go. And since, the, and then what, what got you to a point where you decided to start writing about it? Well, my sales career really began to take off and I eventually worked my way up to sales manager and started sharing with other people what was working for me. And, um, then I started, there, there was a, um, uh, I went to a seminar and bought some tapes, cassette tapes. This is how long ago it was, right? right. Cassette tape, which is like one step above an eight-track tape. Yeah, right? I remember eight-track, Bob. There were exactly, and uh, and in the back of his tapes, there was a uh, an offer that if you wanted to learn how to, you know, sell their tapes uh, and speak publicly, they would teach you how. So I went there and. And uh, I, I think over the next year or two, I was their leading salesman in the country. They just showed you how to do it. I mean, it was totally systemized. You talked for 25 minutes at a, anywhere that would have you speak for free, and then you sold the tapes at the end. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Which was a blast. And I thought, you know, I'd like to take <clears throat> the information that's in my personal wheelhouse yeah. and start teaching those things. 
and do my own thing. And I did and started a business doing that. And as they used to say on the old Seinfeld TV show, yada, 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 here we are. <laughs> here we are. Okay. Do you know one of the things I really liked in the book was the bit about posture? Yes. I, I mean, I, 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 is that in the fourth law, the one of late, authenticity? Late, I think so. Later on in the book, you talk about posture. Right. And, and I don't know if you've read recently Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Yeah, sure. And he talks about um, the lobsters at the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah, think that was his first chapter. It's the, first, it's the opening chapter of the book. And it made me think very much of that chapter of the, of the Jordan Peterson book, just the concept huh. of posture. Interesting. Yeah, that whole concept of being a tall lobster. Yeah. And so, you know, it, with, with posture, what we're really talking about is, <coughs> excuse me. It's okay. I'm a first that, aider, Bob. Here, Bob, do you want some water? I'm a first aider. It's okay. Ah, do you want thanks. some water? <laughs> My apologies. No, it's no, all right. Um, so, you know, we're really, when we talk about posture, it's that lack of emotional attachment to a result. And this is so very important because we know that we can be so attached. Again, this is when your focus a lot of times is on yourself, right? And Mm -hmm. on the money, but also it can be just because you are so in love with your product or service and how much it could help that other person that you almost take it personally when they're not interested. And so, and that, again, it doesn't help anybody. One of my old mentors, uh, Bill Gove, right? Who, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. He was one of the old-time salespeople for uh, NCR, National Cash Register. Yeah, we and know it was them. so long ago. Okay, it was actually when Nat, when NCR, when National Cash Register sold cash registers. Right. That, that's how that's how long ago it was. And he was a world champion salesperson. And one thing that Bill said that he taught all of his proteges, which was so wonderful was he said, when it comes to sales, he said, you're responsible to people, not for people. And what he meant by that was you're responsible to them in order in terms of being prepared, in terms of giving them the opportunity, in terms of knowing and understanding your product or service, in terms of understanding and knowing their needs, wants, and desires, and everything that you can control, you are responsible to them to show up appropriately that way. But as he said, you're not responsible for their life's decisions. It's ultimately up to them whether they choose to ultimately uh, pursue happiness through your, your, you know, by investing in your product or service. And what I so love about that is that it really, you know, what it says, it doesn't say you don't care. Of course you care. You would prefer this person be interested in buy. But it says that, you know, really you can feel good about it regardless of the result so long as you did your job. Yeah. And that's so important. But it's also, this is why I also believe so much in building a referral-based business. Because when you have lots and lots of A-list, high-quality referred prospects, it also allows you to be able to kind of have that posture because you're really not, you're not, um, your business is not dependent upon any one person saying yes. And as John and I say in the book, in order to succeed in your business, Someone has to say yes, but it doesn't have to be this particular that one person. person. Yeah, I think there is a, sometimes there is a, a, a swagger 
in a salesperson, you can sense it sometimes in the Mike and I talked about it on the show last week, didn't we? Mm. About almost when a salesperson's doing it right and it's working right for them and they're going well, they develop almost this comfort with, listen, you want to buy it? Great. You don't, don't. And they're almost taller. Yeah. And, and we've seen it, haven't we, where... Well, you see people shrink. I can see people physically shrink when they're doing badly. They just get smaller and smaller yeah. throughout the and week. That's, and, the, and then, then that often then translates into the way they sell because it becomes needy. And that yeah. neediness translates into the client and the client smells that need uh, as opposed to that posture of, oh, I'd love you to buy it, but if you don't, you don't. If you do, you do. It, yeah, it's, it's only so when you care, but yeah. not that much, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd prefer it and it's also you know we talk about humble posture it's it's you know it's posture really is the ability when they say no for you to be able to say next but we want to have humble posture you know not arrogant posture it's you know, yes. when they say no and you say next you don't say next out loud right you yeah. say it to yourself but that's you, a very know. i find in and of itself that is a very attractive it is it's a very ah ah yes it's a very attractive quality because let's face it by and large, people don't want to do business with other with those who need them no. too much. They want to know that your business and that you are successful enough that yes, you'd prefer them to do business with you, but that you don't they, that you don't have to have them do business with you. Yeah, much more attractive. Yeah, yeah it it is. So I've got a couple of questions here, Bob, and I'm going to go back into the book if I may. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about was, and I've you know I think I've pretty much asked every author we, that we've had on the show this question which is so it's computer software company x they're a multi-billion dollar global software corporation and they're quarterly driven they're listed on nasdaq and it's quarter end and you know and i know in these very quarterly driven sales environments sometimes the pressure is ring the client give them a discount push do Ask him, what, what have we got to do to get the business, Mr. Customer? These can be very, very driven, very pushy environments, yet nonetheless very successful. Where does a company like that start with this kind of thinking? You know, if, if you got called into, I don't know, I'm not naming names, but let's say Computer Associates tomorrow. Um, well, there's loads, isn't there? Computer Associates, millions, Oracle, IBM, we, Microsoft. Yeah, we could sit here all day and talk about them. If you got called into a, an enterprise software vendor tomorrow and they said, we, we just feel like the spirit with which we're, we're doing this isn't right, where would you start with a, a business like that where the essential essence of the sales environment is probably the antithesis of, of what you're espousing here in many respects? Well, if there's going to be change, it needs to start from the top and the top needs to buy into it. And yeah. Because if they don't buy into it, they can say whatever they want, uh, but nothing's going to change. The whole, you know, the culture um, has to change. And we know that, you know, you can lead from anywhere, but a culture of leadership comes from the top and trickles down. Yeah. So, again, it goes right back to that that CEO understanding why it's important to do this. Yeah. Okay. Simple as. And we were talking earlier about a lot of the concept that you talk about with influence and I made a lot of notes when we were reading the book about influence and networking in particular where the game has changed so much Bob you know you've seen it we were just talking about eight track cassettes um you know I remember eight track I remember listening to it in the back of my parents car with the carpenters on so it dates us both 
And if I look up, since I started my sales career, you know, there was a tin box on the desk with index cards. And now, um, you know, we're in such a high-tech world. And I think one of the things that's difficult for people is that it's very easy to forget about true networking. You made the concept about anybody within three feet is we're talking to. Um, whereas we've now got these people on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, where they've got 30, 40,000 followers. Is 30, 40,000 followers, is that a network? Well, it always depends how you define the term in the first place. But I'd say when it comes to relationship building, you still do it one person at a time. And I think the biggest difference between now you can you can put out uh, information to attract a lot of people, which hopefully you you know do want to do. But but when you're uh, you know I when people say, well, what's you know can you build relationships online? Like you could absolutely you can. It always comes back to the same question that you would ask yourself when you're belly to belly in front of person, in front of a person that is, is what I'm about to say or tweet or post or what have you. Is this going to add value to the other person? Right. Um, so, you know, I've heard people say, well, you can't really build relationships online. I disagree. I've built and I've taught people to and I've seen people build wonderful relationships online. But a lot of times, too, it's not an either or. It's it's an and. and yeah. Okay. And so, um, but it still comes down to, you know, see, I think technology is wonderful. I think social media is wonderful because it allows us to be able to connect with people in the first place. We probably never would have been able to get to yeah. in the mm-hmm. first place. Well, look at the conversation we're having now. This is amazing when we think about yeah, exactly. it. Exactly. So it's always how it's used. You know, it's, it's not a matter of does this work or does that. Everything works if you work it correctly. Um, you know, but it's a matter of, of understanding again, like anything else, it's a, it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Right. Okay. Okay. So in reality, there's still the, the ability and the need to network at a human level. I mean, some of the most successful guys I know are a mate. Michael and I talked about this last week. Mm. I would say the majority of, of the truly successful people I know I think their one single strength is actually they're amazing networkers more mm-hmm. than anything else. They just know everyone. Um, one guy in particular who has just recently sold his company and he's a very successful guy. I was telling Mike, if there was one house in the city I could have, it would be his. Um, he is an incredible network and an incredibly warm hearted human being uh, um, towards everybody. And he's always got a minute for everybody, but his networking ability and his networking skill is monumental. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, I've always right. found that difficult because I'm naturally grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <aren't> I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you, do you know what I mean? It's it, whereas I think there's an element of gregariousness where some people tend to just net. They're good at that. Everybody they meet, they don't see them as a prospect, but they somehow just they just get involved with them. Do you know something the book doesn't explicitly state, Bob, but I wanted to talk to you about this is, <clears throat> is that I think that human beings can subconsciously detect good people and could subconsciously detect bad people. Yeah. And it doesn't. this book doesn't talk about the non-verbal subconscious communication that comes from being sat opposite somebody knowing that you're sat there with their best interest at heart. But it seems to refer to it a lot. Um, almost yeah. indirectly, uh, is that uh, is that sentiment something that we should just take as read by doing it, or is that something that you specifically 
haven't talked about. No, I mean, I, I agree with you. And I think most people can tell. Hey, but, you know, there's also a lot of people out there who, boy, are they good fakers. They can- <laughs> I, see, I don't agree with that, Bob. I actually genuinely right. think that there's something at a subconscious level in the human psyche that can that can tell a faker. I, just, I, was no, thinking- I don't agree. I think you look at some of the candidates we place, some of the candidates we place who are incredibly successful are narcissistic, sociopathic. Don't agree with that. And I'll tell you why. Because sometimes you can see it particularly with plastic surgery. I know it sounds like an odd uh, an odd metaphor, really, but you see it with plastic surgery where your mind just knows that that's plastic surgery. Yes. It just picks it out somehow. And I no one spotted mine and I, yet. And I think that buyers can just pick out falseness somehow. So here's, here's kind of what I was going to say. There are a lot of people out there who, but remember, it's a big world. So when I say there are a lot, it doesn't mean percentage-wise. It just means it's a big world. So there's a lot there's of people of out there yeah. who are really, really, really good con artists and really good at putting that, you know, um, I mean, we see con artists do a lot of con, you know, being yeah, yeah, successful yeah. at conning. So, I yeah. mean, obviously, it's a, but I agree with you that over time, especially, and often right away, there's a sense that we we generally have about people. And I also like how with the internet, it's made it tougher for people to sustainably uh, con others and do bad things. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, I think by and large, it just, um, it, 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 I, I think, you know, by and large, it's it's hard to, you know, to, to fool too many people too often and too consistently, which, you know, obviously is a, is a good thing. Absolutely. Well, listen, I think we must be getting close to time here, Jonathan. Pretty we've, much. We've yeah. spoke for a long time. Tell, tell me, Bob, have you got any other books in the, in the, in the frame? Are you writing anything else? Um, right now, we're uh, putting out a, um, we're producing a um, couple of videos that will be selling online. One right. is called Endless Referrals, The Go-Giver Way, and another will be uh, Genuine Influence, the go-giver way. So we're in the middle of producing them right now. We've got Great. one already done, ready to be post-produced, and the other we're in the middle of. So uh, that's been a, a long time coming, and we're very excited about those. Fantastic. Fantastic. Right. Well, listen, Bob, um, when I started reading Go Give a Sell More, I wasn't sure. By the end of it, actually, I really enjoyed it. I got a lot oh, out of it. Um the thing I, it got me thinking about a lot more for me, the predominant thing was value. It's made me think it's, a lot more about every interaction mm. and the value people are getting. And even for example, just in a little sales email thinking who's this email for me or them. Mm. Uh, and that's been great. And it, so I think if, it's very difficult to write an email where the sentence doesn't start with the word. I, I. We go through that all the time. So when we, difficult. When my business partner, Kathy Tajanel, and I uh, will, you know, we write a lot of emails and, yeah. and sales letters. And I'll tell you, the first time we go through it, we just laugh because it's so focused on ourselves. Yeah. And we know this is what we teach, right? And we go through it the first time and it's all taking about the eyes, the me's, the benefit, right? You know, and so that, that, that first time going through a sales letter is all about taking us and then you write letter. it in a different way and then you read it and think, well, that sounds unusual. Yeah. <laughs> it sort of doesn't read correctly, does it? Yeah. So that's been a great takeakaway for me. And it's absolutely, a, a, a genuinely, it's been an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you uh, so the much. Honor, the honor is mine. And, and when I say honor, I mean that H-O-N-O-U-R. Yes, Bob, that's how we spell it. 
That's how oh, it's spelled. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, listen, Bob, thank you very much. Let's roll our titles and we will see you, I'm sure, next time.